we begin a new series in a very long book. I promise you it will not last as long as it looks. Telling someone, a friend yesterday, that we're starting Job tomorrow, and he was reminding me of the old Puritan pastor that spent 24 years studying, preaching through Job. We won't be here that long, I promise, okay? Uh, we are going to go about 15 weeks in this, which in one sense may seem like quite a long time, in another sense, uh, we'll feel like we're sprinting through the Louvre sprinting right through the art gallery and we're not going to see a whole lot. Uh, we really should slow down but for sake of finishing in a timely manner. We want to speed it up. So this will actually be one of the first uh, few Sundays that we will only cover one chapter. And so I kind of warned you about that. I hope that you've taken that seriously because in the coming weeks we'll be looking at several chapters at once, uh, three and four even sometimes, and so we will not try to go word by word, verse by verse through those longer passages, but I will simply try to show you the overall context of what's going on and then leave it to you to uh, finish and study, uh, read through it on your own. And so um, I may give you a schedule uh, printed out for you so that you're able at least to see what we're looking at week to week and plan on that. But this morning we're in Job chapter 1. As normally I would do also, I would read the entire thing for you before we begin working through it. And uh, this week we could do that, but just there's so much to say uh, about these few verses that uh, we'll just read it as we go and uh, cover it in that way. And then, of course, as we get into the next few weeks, there's no way we'll be able to read it all. And so we'll just we'll be kind of picking a, a spot in the, in the overall passage and then spending our time through it. I feel like there's a lot of things we need to say before we get started in it. Uh, one of the things that I feel is necessary to say is, is come ready to be challenged in your thinking, in your theology, in your perception of what it means to, for God to be God and you to be uh, a creation. Uh, I will not be surprised at all if we get angry at times as we read through this. If we get confused, if we get frustrated, because that's what Job, I think, is intended to do, to work up some of these emotions within us in order to teach us the truth. If that happens, talk to someone about it. Don't just stew in it yourself. Come and tell me. Come and uh, find another person and say, what is going on? I do not like this. I do not understand this. This morning, uh, in Job 1, we, we kind of get an introduction to the whole book. Many times uh, in, in a sermon on Job, we really only cover chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then we skip ahead to chapter 42, and we talk about how it ended. We miss a lot of the stuff in the middle, and I found myself growing up uh, kind of intimidated by Job because there's so much stuff in there, and, and their friends were so mean to Job, and I don't know what they meant and what they wanted to say and what they what they should have said, and, and all, all of that just kind of kept me away from it, and so... Uh, I'm kind of facing my fears, if you will, and going into it. But as the more I look in it, Job is a fantastic book, and I hope that you'll make it a, a point to be here every week and study through it. Then on our Sunday evenings together, we will uh, spend some time looking, summarizing a little bit of what we talk about in the morning, but also taking advantage of 
extra time to look at other places in the passage that we didn't get to. So tonight, as we meet uh, at the Spinks home, we will uh, look at uh, a few of the, the other things that we don't get to cover this morning. And as I said, we are really sprinting through a gold mine here. We're going to get something, but we're not going to get everything. And so I would encourage you to come back to it this week and read it again and again and again and again. And maybe make it a habit to read the Job 1 once every day this week and next week, Job 2 and 3 uh, as, we, as we move through these books together. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless, Lord to bless us as we begin His Word. Father, Your Word is powerful. It is the sharp two-edged sword that pierces uh, straight to the heart and uh, cannot be stopped. It penetrates as far as it wishes to. And we ask this morning that as we submit ourselves to the Word, that it would do its work in us. Through the story of Job, the story of, of really the story of how you worked in Job's life, we pray that we would we would be changed, that we would be honest with your word and with ourselves, with you as we consider these these words in this man's life. Help us, please. There's so much to, to, to be said, just can't be said in the time we have. And we pray that the, the most important things would rise to the surface and that we would be able to glean the truths that we need for this day and at this hour. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Man, I want to start with a statement that I think you'll agree with. We'll work from there. Here's the statement. The glory of God is the most important thing. Or let me say it like this. The glory of God matters more than anything else. It's the first and great priority in this world. Don't raise your hand, but I wonder if you agree with that statement. Is the glory of God the highest goal, the greatest exercise in the world and in all of creation? Not just planet Earth, the world, but in everything, heaven and earth, the glory of God is supreme. The Bible seems to say it is so. In First Peter, what uh, Tim read for us, one of the verses say that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 11, he said, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Whether you eat, or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I would hope that everybody in the room would say, yes, the glory of God is the most important thing there is. But let's complicate it. What if the glory of God costs you? What if it means that for God to receive glory, you're going to pay a price? You are going to pay a high price. It might cost you your comfort or your prosperity, your safety. We, we seem to place a high priority on safety these days. What if the glory of God cost you your safety, your health? What if it cost you your family, 
then would you agree that the glory of God matters most of all? Would you still worship at such a high cost? A lot of professing Christians, I think, would say the glory of God matters the most. But when they learn what it costs personally, I think they balk and hesitate. Because when the rubber meets the road, they're not really committed to the glory of God. Yet, when we read Job, we see a man who experienced everything I just mentioned and continued to maintain that the glory of God matters more than anything. The story of Job is a story of suffering. Uh, really, the depths of this man's suffering we will never know. I pray that you never know the depths of this man's suffering, but we get an inside look at just how badly one person can suffer. But at the same time, the story of Job is a story of sovereignty. God is sovereign. We use that word a lot, along with suffering. We want to make sure we understand what that means, but even as we simply just give a definition that doesn't really explain what sovereignty means, as we need to see it played out throughout the 42 chapters of Job. It's a story of sovereignty because we see how an all-powerful and an all-good God and let Job suffer. Now, as we study Job, we're going to understand how these two concepts work together and how they can exist in the same world. Human suffering, divine sovereignty. One writer, one pastor, called Job a divine manual on human suffering. So our study of Job, as I mentioned, is going to test our views of a lot of different things. First of all, I think it's going to test our view of God. How do you really view God? What does sovereignty really mean? What exactly is fair? I think it's going to challenge our views about faith and prosperity and suffering. As we will see, Job is a very, very religious man, a man full of faith, but full of trouble and suffering and hardship. We could say it like this. I know it's not proper English, but Job was the goodest and the greatest, and yet he suffered like no one else. The story of Job is long, 42 chapters worth, and I think really most of us would rather just Job be a chapter or two long because it seems to tell a pretty decent story. But I believe that the 42 chapters of Job force us to sit with Job in his misery, and in our own misery at times. You have to listen, to wait, and like our own suffering, you can't just rush right through it and get it over with. At the same time, Job is largely poetic. Most of the, of the verses in Job are, are poetic. And you'll see that as we get into chapter 3. And I think that that causes us to slow down again and think and meditate, whereas it simply could just been said. It was said in a poem and, and said so, so dramatically and so flowery at times causes to think. Job is also a dramatic book. It takes us up and down, spins us around like a roller coaster. Job is emotional. Makes feelings of joy, pain, frustration, anger, hope, confusion, hopelessness. All of these emotions that we too experience will arise in Job's life and in our own hearts as we read it. 
The story of Job is also frustrating in that way because we watch a good, innocent man lose everything. Get no sympathy from his family and his friends. And at the lowest point of his life, the Lord digs a hole and lets him go deeper. doesn't get better right away. This is certainly not a Disney-worthy story. I think it's frustrating as well because it tests our own ideas of suffering and God. It makes us angry because it's not, God doesn't work the way we want him to. Finally, the story of Job is magnificent. This is a fantastic story. And that's why I hope that you'll hang on for the whole thing. Because in the story of Job, we get to see God in a very unique way. In a way that really no other book of the Bible captures our God. Because in Job, we get to see behind the scenes in the life of possibly one of the greatest men that ever walked on this earth. And because we get to see the glory of God in an exceptional way. And in, in all of this, I think we'll get to see ourselves. So by way of, of an outline, we're going to follow the narrative of these, of these uh, 22 verses. And we will see in verse 1 through 5, it's there was a man. And this is the introduction of Job. This is not the beginning of the story. It's just the prologue, if you will. And then if you look at verse number 6, we see there was a day. And that will be our next section as we look at Job's trouble and this, or this scene in heaven that led to Job's trouble, which then picks up in verse number 13. There was another day, and that's how we'll walk through it. If you look at Job 1 and verse 1, let's look at this man. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God, turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. There's, not, there's a lot that we know about Job, but as much as we know, there's a lot that we don't know. And the way that the Scripture even begins by telling us, it tells us two things that we really like to know about a person that we just simply can't know. When this happened and where it happened. We know us, it happened in us, but where's us? And when did this happen? And, and, and as a great man of faith and as, a, as, as seemingly a patriarch, in, in a sense, we don't have a genealogy of this man. We don't really know a whole lot about this man. But what the Bible does tell us at the beginning of the story tells us what we do need to know to understand what happens in a little bit. And I think in the way that Job is introduced as just this ordinary guy, we can find ourselves in him a lot easier. Kind of crosses the time barriers and the, and the geographic borders. And though I wasn't as, I'm not as rich as Job, I can find myself very easily mirrored in Job. Let's, let's notice a few things about Job that I think are very important as we begin this section, but also the entire book. First of all, Job was a godly man. It describes in two pairs uh, ways that Job is, is this godly, uh, righteous man. First of all, it says he was blameless. The word blameless is a, is a theme that we'll see throughout the book uh, to describe Job. Blameless is, a, is the same word that was described of, of Noah in chapter Genesis chapter 6, that Noah was blameless. Uh, this is also the same way that Abraham was described in Genesis uh, chapter 17 when God told him to be blameless before him. 
The word blameless, and uh, uh, if you're using a King James Bible, I think it will say perfect there. It does not mean that he was sinless, but rather that he was blameless. The word blameless here is, this, is, is the word used elsewhere for integrity or used for sincerity. So when we say that Job was blameless or perfect, you could kind of say he was innocent. He, he wasn't doing anything wrong. As far as a man could be good, Job was a good man. In other words, Job was the real deal. He was complete in his integrity. Or we could say it this way, Job was not a hypocrite. What you see is what you get with Job, and what you get is a fantastic example of a godly man. But also, Job is an upright man. And this, this, is, this is that word that, that means Job was a straight dealer. He was a straight shooter. He, he, the way he treated you was, was right. The way he walked before God was right. The way he treated other people was right. Then it says that he feared God and he turned from evil. Both uh, a negative and a positive showing us the same thing, that, that Job's behavior was all that we could expect a Christian to be. He was a good man. He was not perfect. And we'll see later on that Job even acknowledges, I'm not perfect, but I am blameless. I didn't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not living a hypocrite's life, as his friends will accuse him of later. And, and the way that these, these, these uh, actions are described to us, particularly the fact that he fears God and departs from evil, it shows continuous action. This isn't a one-time thing that Job did. Job feared God one time. But no, every day he feared the Lord. And every day, continuously, Job departed, turned from evil. Secondly, we see Job was a family man. Job had a, a very large family. He had seven sons, three daughters, and seven and three are, 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 are numbers symbolically that represent completeness or perfection. And this man uh, had a large family. And as we look down into verse number five there, Job was very connected and involved in their lives. He has adult children that have their own homes, and yet he still stays connected. And Job is the leader of this very loving, uh, joyful, happy, close, intimate family. We see in verse three that Job was a wealthy man. Uh, the, 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 the way that they measured the wealth in this day was not in a bank account, but in animals. And we see that Job was involved in several aspects of business with the camels, probably a caravan, uh, with farming. Uh, we, we see with, with, the, with, the, with the animals that, that would produce milk and meat. Job was just involved in so many different things and, and really kind of had that golden touch. He was just very successful in so many different ventures Job was prosperous. Job was wealthy. Job was, he had a lot of servants to have all of those animals, and that's what the Bible says, very many servants. Finally, Job was pious. Job was devout. He was religious man. Notice in verse number four there, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned, cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continue. This theme of cursing God is, is one that will be popping up many times from this point. This introduction of Job tells us about a man who in every aspect is someone I think we could all say, I want to be like Job. I want to be wealthy like Job. I want to have a, a great family life like Job. I want to be a religious man like Job. I want to be a godly man like Job. I want, I want, I want to be like Job. I mean, 
I, if there's a man that I, can, that I can say, this is my example, this is my hero, this is someone we can say, I want to be like this guy. But the, the reason I think that Job's introduction is so beautiful here, and not one negative thing is said about him, is to tell us right from the beginning that what Job is about to experience is not his fault. That none of the stuff that's about to come into Job's life is deserved. None of the things that, that will happen to Job beginning in chapter 1 are, are punishment or earned or merited in any way because of his behavior. No, Job was a righteous, godly man. That's the prologue. Now look at verse number 6. There was a day. There was a scene in heaven. A rare opportunity for us to look in to the throne room of God and see Him interact with the angelic creatures there. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. Blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. First of all, we see the adversary or the Satan as it's literally said here, the Satan. This is the adversary. And that's what the word Satan means, an opponent or an adversary. And here he is introduced to us. And there's several things that we need to understand about Satan as we move into this story. First of all, Satan is subordinate to God. It says there that the sons of God or these, these, uh, these angels are coming to present themselves before God. And, and to present themselves is, is implying that they're reporting to a superior. They have been summons. They have been uh, called to give an answer, and these are coming to report for duty. And Satan also is among them. And as rebellious and as evil as Satan is, we need to understand that Satan is under the sovereign rule of God. We even, if you skip down into chapter 2 and verse 1, and we see the same thing happen again, and it says, Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Satan is not acting independently of God. He acts subordinately. He is not outside of the authority and the power and rule of God. Secondly, Satan is accountable to God, just as all of the rest of creation. As he says there, as as God asks him, where have you been? It's not as God is asking, I don't know what you've been up to, so tell me. But rather, give a report. And Satan is having to give a report. And he says, I've been walking up and down in the earth, going to and fro in it. Very similar to what we read in 1 Peter 5, that as a roaring lion, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. And this is Satan's goal and activity on this earth, and this is how he reports to God. Yet, he cannot do as he pleases, and he must give an answer to God. As Martin Luther once said that even the devil is God's devil. He is accountable to God. Thirdly, we see that Satan is limited. Satan knows that God protects his own. We see, first of all, and this is so important that we catch this, but God brought up Job to Satan. 
God knows what Satan is doing as he walks to and fro on the earth. He's seeking whom he may devour. And that's when God says, well, have you ever thought about Job? Have you ever considered Job? Or really, it's, it's have you set your heart upon Job? Have you ever thought about devouring Job? Of course, Satan has because he says, well, I can't. You have a hedge around him. You've blessed him. You've protected him. Bless and keep, as we looked at the benediction last week. God brought up Satan. And God knows Satan. But also God knows Job. As God describes Job exactly as the author describes Job. Now, we know that it's not just the author who thinks this highly of Job, but God himself says, no, Job is blameless. Job is innocent. Job is upright. Job fears me. Job turns from evil. Job is doing what I expect my creation to do. Satan responds there, well, you you bless him and you keep him and That's why He serves you. And you know I can't do anything to Him, God. Satan's logic then is to take away the hedge and to test Job's mettle. And he is convinced that when all the blessings are removed from Job's life, Job will turn. Job will curse him to his face. In other words, Job does not believe, I'm sorry, Satan does not believe that God is enough. Satan believes that Job serves God only for what he gets out of him. God, you're not worthy of worship. Job only serves because you make it worth his while. Prove it by taking it all away and watching him curse you to your face. So then we see the test is now decided. God removes the hedge. God gives Satan access into Job's life to touch his possessions but not his person. And allows Satan to do his worst within the limits. And here we see that Satan is confident that Job will fail. But God is confident that when Job is tried, he will come forth as gold. Job will not fail his Lord. Let me just take a moment here and, and, and to think through what, what Job or what Satan and the Lord have been talking about. Material wealth and possessions, blessings, or lack of them are not an indicator of spirituality. If you have material wealth or you don't have them, that is not an indicator of how how spiritual or religious you are. But material wealth and blessing are a good test of your spirituality. They don't decide if you are, but they do show us if you are. Because when we lose it or when we gain it, it reveals our priorities and our devotion and our integrity. Listen to the words from Proverbs 30, verse 7. Uh, the, the writer there says, Two things I ask of you, he's praying to the Lord, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So money... Wealth, power, fame does not determine if God is pleased with you, but they do test how devoted you are to your Lord. And this testing that Job is about to go through is for the purpose of bringing glory to God. As I said, Job is confident that, uh, Satan is confident that Job will curse God to his face. God is confident. I don't think God was wondering what was going to happen to Job here. He knew who he was. And he knew that Job would come out as he, as he had begun. 
If Job is as Satan thinks he is, then losing everything will make Job bitter. If Job is as God says he is, Job will not lose his integrity. It's what Tim read for us in 1 Peter there, talking about our sufferings, and it says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So, just to kind of get, summarize here, at the, up to this point, at God's suggestion, and with God's permission, and by God's will, it's important that we understand that, Satan is given control over almost every part of Job's life. Do with as he will. And so to be clear, you need to get this, or it's going to mess up everything we understand about Job. Satan can do nothing apart from God's permission. Satan, in a sense, is the minister of God. Satan is not an equal with God. He's not an opposite opposing power of God who challenges God and, and kind of makes it tough for God to bless and keep his people. No, Satan only acts within the bounds of God's will. And secondly, though Satan was the instrument of God's suffering... God is responsible for Job's suffering. Everything that is about to happen to Job for 42 chapters is because God made it so. He may have used Satan to be the instrument to bring that suffering to pass, but he is responsible. We'll see that more clearly, but we need to hasten into the last portion here. There was another day, verse number 13. This is such a sad moment, but certainly... One that happened in Job's life. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. I won't read it all for sake of time. I think you know the story. You can read it in just a few seconds there. This is a day like any other day. This was a day where Job got up and was determined to fear God and turn from evil just as he did every day. And yet this day was different than all of those other days. Because on this day, Job's life was going to change forever. I want you to notice, if you didn't already notice, that Job was not clued in to what was going on in verses 6-12. through 12. Job's just going on life as he has always been. He's known the blessing and the prosperity and the success. And today, he's not anticipating it to be any different. But we see Job's trouble in verses 13-19. through 19, And we see that he loses his greatness. I said a moment ago that Job is both good and great. In fact, he was the goodest and the greatest. He was the goodest in the fact that he lived for God like no one else was living for God at this time, I think. But also he was the greatest in that he had been blessed by God in ways that nobody had been blessed by God. He was both good and great. And the question now is, when Job is no longer great, will Job still be good? And we see that he faces four tests. Two human attacks, if we can call them that, and two natural or divine attacks. In verses 15 and 17, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans come and take away his animals, kill all of the servants. And in verses 16 and then verse 19, and we see these alternating here. The fire of God, as it was, at least from the perspective of the servant, comes and destroys more of Job's wealth. 
And maybe the the cherry on top, verse number 19, the great wind comes. The moment when all of His children are in one house, knocks down the house and kills not only all ten of Job's children, but all of the servants there. Notice a few things about this. The dramatic timing of everything. The cruelty of Satan and how he uses uh, these events to, first of all, uh, it all happens at one time. And they compound like waves that continue to beat, that do not give Job a chance to, 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 to catch his breath. I mean, one of these things happening would be a, a blow. One of these things would be a loss. But to have all of these things happen at one time, and in a matter of moments, Job goes from the greatest man in the East to the poorest man. He, he goes from one of the most blessed men to what it appears to be one of the most punished men. What's going on in Job's life? Notice that it uses the phrase there, while he was yet speaking. Here comes the servant, and he's telling him, and before the words have, have, have really settled in on Job's ears, and before Job can make a response to this servant, here comes another servant with bad news. And he doesn't know what happened just a minute ago, but here he comes, and he tells him the bad news and, and, and in a second wave. And then the third wave, and then the, the, the final blow. Job, your, your kids are dead. Notice the small mercy, and one was able to survive. Come back and tell Job, I alone have escaped to tell you. This is, this is madness. And this, is, this is more than I think, I think any, of us, any of us could handle, except for by God's grace. Can you imagine being in that position? What will you do? What does Job do? Look at verse 20. Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. Two things there. He rose up, mourned, tore his clothes, symbol of grief, great sorrow and mourning, shaved his head. Then he fell to his knees, and he worshipped. Listen to what Job says. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. Came into this world with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. I had nothing when I came. I will leave with nothing. The Lord gave. Notice Job credits God with doing this. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could you say that in your time of loss and suffering? One, someone once said, worship is the true and best use of our afflictions. And that's what Job does. In the maybe the greatest sorrow of his life, he worships. And notice what it says there at the end to summarize all of this, to make sure that we understand how Job has responded, that Job did not sin. He did not charge God with wrong. In gain or in loss, for Job, God is enough. It's all he needed. Job did not curse God to his face, as Satan thought. Just as God knew, Job would bless, even without God's blessings. Now the last verse there tells us that Job acknowledged this trouble came from God, but didn't blame God. He didn't charge God with doing wrong, saying, God, I recognize that this came from you, but what you've done is not the wrong 
thing. The taking away was not wrongdoing on God's part. And already we see the gospel being fulfilled that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, there was, there was a promise that, that God would redeem His fallen creation and that He would send a, a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head and to, uh, the serpent would bruise his heel and he would bruise his head. And in Job's day, it's already evident that God has put this enmity between the serpent and the woman's offspring and that God has ransomed the people for Himself and that the victory that Satan thought he was going to get in the Garden of Eden has not been won. It is not final. All hope is not lost, not all will continue in Adam's rebellion. Because here is one named Job who will worship God for who he is and submit to his power and his authority. Who will fear him and turn from evil and in gain or in loss, in suffering or in victory, good times or bad, he will serve. His eyes have been opened to see the supreme worth of his Creator. His, and his life is spent for the glory of God. Now, this would be an appropriate ending to the story. Job survives. Job wins. God wins the argument. Job learns to deal with his loss. He eventually moves on. He's never the same, but you know he, he learns to pick up the pieces of his life and move on. But if we get into chapter 2 and we find that this is only the beginning of Job's suffering. Things are going to go from bad to worse. We're going to see Job sink lower. We're going to see Job, the humanity of Job be revealed. He's not a perfect man. We're going to watch him make mistakes and express his frustration and his grief. He's going to get it wrong sometimes, and God's going to rebuke him later for it. Here's what I want us to grab from this first part of the story here. Job didn't know why he was suffering, but he did know what to do. You and I are not going to know why we suffer, why we experience loss, why heartbreak, why frustration and confusion comes into our lives. God does not tell us, nor is He obligated to explain Himself to us, but we can still know what to do because it's going to happen. What do we do? Worship. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. God does what God wants to do. Daniel chapter 4, the king said, God does according to his will, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because God is sovereign. Notice that Job's response of worship was automatic and natural. Although worship is not really a natural response, which tells me that Job's, this was not the first time Job worshipped. This was not the first time that Job turned to God in whatever circumstance of his life. This was something that was formed long before. We don't learn to worship in the moment. It comes over time. And often, we're not going to have chapter 1 in our lives. Things are going to happen to you, and it may be happening to you right now, or it may be coming down the road, and you're not going to know why. You're not going to have a chapter 1 to say, oh, God was doing this to prove something to Satan or to test me. We're not going to have those exact uh, explanations, but we do know what to do. Worship. We need to remember God is sovereign. He is great. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. All-power which means he could stop it from coming. 
At the same time, God is all good, even when he doesn't stop it from coming. This book and this story of Job started with a question in chapter 1. Is God enough? Is he worthy of your worship and your loyalty, even without the benefits and the blessings that he gives? When we lose the things that we hold dearly in this life, we are forced to answer that question. Is God enough for you? Do you worship God or the blessings of God? Do you worship because of his blessings? Will you worship without his blessings? Job 1 reminds us that God is at work doing things behind the scenes that we'll never know. We do not understand, we cannot see, and we must learn to accept that. Not expect God to justify himself to us, to explain himself. We must trust him knowing that the judge of all the earth will do what is right must learn that the glory of God is greater than our comfort, than our happiness, and our success, our riches, our health, whatever it may be. We must learn that in whatever circumstance of life we find ourselves in, God is worthy of worship. And God is always enough. Let's pray.